0: You know, stuff like that is kind of like getting abs. It sucks to get there and it sucks to maintain it, but you kind of have to do it in order to figure out that it's really, it's like the same thing as getting rich. It's like, well, I mean, not to say that it sucks, not to say that you don't want to strive to make a lot of money. I think that I think that having a lot of money is better than not having enough money. But you realize that money is an amplifier. It amplifies everything that's already there. And So if your life sucks, or you're a miserable person, or you don't have good friends, or you're not philanthropic, or you don't exercise enough, having more money ain't going to do shit. It's just going to amplify that. If you're a selfish jerk, having more money is just going to make you more of a selfish jerk. Right. And And so the key then is to Try to be a good person all along. Try to do the right things all along. Try to Mm -hmm. exercise and live a well-balanced life. And uh, having money is going to amplify all of the good things you're already doing. But if you're sacrificing a ton in order to get a lot of money, you don't have to read many biographies of super successful people Mm -hmm. in order to uh, realize very quickly that while you might admire what they've accomplished, you don't desire their life.
1: Welcome to the Strength Connection Podcast, a show to share stories, insights, and experiences in strength physically, mentally, and spiritually. I'm Michael Krukowski, host of the Strength Connection, and I'm so grateful that you can join me today. So in these episodes, I connect with some of the most inspiring and successful individuals to chop it up and learn from true life experiences that have helped them become who they are. The strongest versions of themselves. One of the greatest ways I've always learned the most important lessons is through stories. We all have them, and they make us who we are. So let's dive in. Here we go. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the Strength Connection podcast. Jonathan Goodman. Good to see you, man. Thanks for doing this. Hey, dude. Been a while. It has been uh, quite a while. So I said it's about two years since the last time we riffed. And, uh, and I know you've been working on quite a few things. So I really appreciate you taking the time and, and jumping back on, man
0: yeah, this' be fun. I mean, i'm I'm excited uh, to go through all these mindset shifts and stuff like that. like I said to you beforehand. you know these these form the framing of my next book.
1: yeah, and Not-
0: the book has been about two years and it'll be out mm-hmm. in january twenty twenty five. so it's like mm-hmm. a three year project. and it'll be really good to be able to explore these with you and kind of get your see what your response is because uh, writing is kind of an echo
1: chamber activity. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So, like, to kick this off, I'll, I'll give a framework of how our conversation is going to go today. Did just want to always, you know, highlight too. You were one of the first people that I really started reading and digesting their content 15 years ago when I first got into the personal training world and Jesus. was one. Yeah, that I really realized it wasn't just about the sets and reps, but just about getting into the business side, the mindset side, really looking at every different aspect of producing a quality life. And you can do that through health and fitness. So you're really one of the first voices that I've heard, which kind of always made me want to ask more questions and go deeper into it, which is a lot of the framework of what we're going to do today. So to just set the scene is uh, late October, you put a birthday post out turned 38 and went over the last year of your life made a couple million dollars got a great book deal worked out almost every other day still. And while having two kids, a six-year-old and a one-year-old, and going through pretty severe thing going on with your wife in surgery. And there's 20 mindset shifts that you brought out here. And when I read this, I was like, these are all not just great advice, but there's a lot of depth in these. So what I wanted to do today is go through some of these, see, highlight some of them and allow you to expand and we'll dive in there. Sound good?
0: Yeah, let's do it. I'm a little bit nervous.
1: <laughs> well, I want to let's. I'm going to start with the first one right off the bat. It says, It's helpful to admit that we're all amateurs. So, first question I want to ask is, Is there a reason that this was number one, or was it just the first one that came to your mind?
0: I, yes. I mean, the order was very much on purpose. Mm-hmm. The first chapter in the book. So, the book is 18 Timeless Lessons to Become the Obvious Choice. And it's very much a recalibration back to the timeless things that have always worked, that will always work. Whereas we obsess over algorithmic changes and technological developments. And I don't think that they can be ignored, but I think at the end of the day, it's humans who use the technology and the humans are the people who matter more at the end of the day. And, and, you know, there's always going to be, the buttons are always going to change. The humans who push them are not going to change. So we Mm -hmm. should probably understand the human. And one of the major facets of it is this this juxtaposition between what I call chaotic ambition and true ambition. And I think a lot of chaotic and reckless ambition happens as a result of, quite simply, we think that we're better than we are. We think that we know more than we do. We think that we know things that are special. We live in a world and it's going to become increasingly more so like this where information's democratized, like there's no competitive advantage to knowing more. I mean, unless you're maybe at the top of the world for whatever you do, Mm -hmm. but even then, oftentimes there's such diminishing returns once you get past a certain point of knowledge in a subject Mm -hmm. that there really isn't that much to gain, even if you are that much more knowledgeable on whatever your subject is mm-hmm. because the majority of what anybody needs to solve their problem is actually 101 level information right i mean fitness is a perfect example of that but it's the same for anything like what do you need to do you need to mm-hmm. basically sleep relatively well eat good food mm-hmm. and as little crap as possible and try to move every day i mean really that's the 80 20 of it like if you did mm-hmm. that you'd be you'd be doing pretty well and so I think it's helpful to admit that we're all actually amateurs because that what that allows us to do is that allows us to separate from this kind of nagging existential feeling, like we always have to know more about our thing. And actually what we need to do is we need to surround our thing with a lot of complementary skills and complementary mm. bits of knowledge yeah. that allow us to amplify our impact. And those are behavioral psychology or psychology. Those are writing skills, communication skills, presentation skills. Those are financial skills. I mean, do you understand how money works? Mm-hmm. Money is the biggest, is the most important commodity in the world. Right? No commodity exists if money doesn't exist. And so, you have to understand how money works. Mm-hmm. And when you start putting these things together, what you realize is that actually you need a basically okay knowledge of your thing, and then you need to surround it with basically okay knowledges of everything else. Mm-hmm. For example, by any standard, I was just an okay personal trainer. I mean, I have a kinesiology degree. Right? I trained clients. I read the same books as everybody else. You know, I was fine. I was good. I was good enough but I was a very successful personal trainer and I was a very successful personal trainer, not because I was that good at the fitness and nutrition side. It's because I understood I had a, a a mediocre knowledge of psychology Mm -hmm. and I had a mediocre knowledge of marketing and business development. And those three things put together helped me rise above my industry in any of those individual fields. I would be considered just okay to mediocre. But when you start combining them is when the real magic happens.
1: Yeah. Those unique pairings. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. You know, I thought it was interesting when I'm, and I thought you would put that one first for a reason, which I'm glad that I was, you know, my intuition was good on that mark. And it is, and especially in the, in the time that we are now, where it's so easy to jump on anything and compare yourself to someone yes. else. And they think yes. that. They know so much more about something than you do realizing that even the top of the top of the people, Jeff Bezos is an expert at certain things, but he's an amateur in probably many different things in his life because he's only pigeonholed himself into one thing. And I think when you realize that, you realize that we're all trying to figure this shit out one day at a time in here. And it allows you personally, for me, when I hear that, I know, okay, I can do my best with what I have today. And I can just work on that and get a little bit better at certain things at one time.
0: Like, how do you beat Michael Jordan? You sure as hell? You don't play, play basketball. basketball. <laughs> I mean, you play your own game. Yeah. You figure out what your game is and you play it. And I think a lot of people are trying to play the wrong game today. They're trying to compete with influencers and playing the influencer game. But they don't want the rewards uh, of, of the influencer game, which we can get into if you want. But it's mm-hmm. it's completely different award mechanisms, time horizons, and rules of engagement. Yeah. And, uh, and it's a fine game to play. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. But you're going to get your ass kicked if you're playing Michael Jordan at basketball. Right. Simple as that.
1: Yeah. I want to just go back really quick because you mentioned this of chaotic ambition versus true ambition. Can you explain that a little bit more? On that
0: yeah 100 i can as i open up the book right here uh yeah so chaotic ambition is is it's reactive it's competitive it's rushed true ambition is proactive it's thoughtful it's strategic so true ambition allows for calculated risk provides the energy direction necessary for achievement Too often we find ourselves driven yet tired, motivated yet anxious, hardworking yet frustrated and burned out. So much of what we do when we're working hard just simply doesn't matter. It's a reformative effect of our fast-paced social media-driven environment, of the crushing pressure of ambition and competitiveness. And I think nobody wants it to be this way any more than they wanted to sit at the table at the back of the cafeteria on the first day of high school. It's just something we all collectively accepted as to how things are. Chaotic ambition is kept going because it's comfortable. Keeping busy soothes our fear. Doing something saves us from the hard work of, fe- of figuring out whether what we're doing is making any damn difference. Mm. I don't think that recklessness is a necessary or inevitable condition of life. I think it's something that we've chosen, if only by our acquiescence to it. When we remove this chaos, when we slow the fuck down, we're left with what's real. Whereas chaos lays waste to our efforts. True ambition is a pretty powerful ally. The American military commander, um, Dwight D. Eisenhower, wants to find a genius as the man who can do the average thing when everybody else is going crazy. I think that personal and professional success isn't the result of brilliance. I think it's the world you get for being consistently not stupid longer than the
1: other guy. Mm. Do you find that with, I mean, you've got a lot of irons in the fire of a lot of things that you're working on. Is it, do you sometimes, do you have to, sit back often and make sure like I am following my true ambition does the chaotic ambition sometimes kind Mm -hmm. of wean themselves into your own mind
0: I mean I've fallen into the trap I feel like so many times over the years that I can recognize it pretty quick and pull myself out of it I do have a lot of irons in the fire but I don't do a lot and I think that that's the misconception it is uh oh god what was his name James uh something he he was one of the guys who discovered the DNA double helix structure Mm-hmm. And he has this famous quote where he says, uh, in order to achieve great things, one must remain slightly unemployed at all times. Right. <laughs> and that's not the exact quote, but it's good enough. It's beautiful. I'm I'm unemployed most of the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, how long did it take me to get back to your email? Right? Sorry <laughs> about that, man. A month? I don't know. It's all good. But... I don't feel any pressure to abide by a lot of the standards of things like responsiveness or uh, meetings. Mm-hmm. And that is not a optimization exercise in terms of business or financial gain. That's me trying to figure out, okay, what's the way that I want to live my life and what's good enough here and there. And so the businesses that I run, i in no way optimized for profit and I've resisted uh, any outside investment or partnerships. Because to me, incentives have to line up. I have a lot of friends who have sold big parts of their business or taken a lot of investment. And in every single case, the business just changed because the incentives changed. And that wasn't necessarily a bad thing in every case. I just watched it as an onlooker and realized that it wasn't something that I wanted personally. In order for me to have the type of businesses that I have, I needed to remain in control of them and mm-hmm. know that, hey, these things aren't going to be as big as they might otherwise be because I'm not willing to do the things that have to be done in order for that to happen. So, yeah, I mean, my stuff grows slower. Yeah. It's fine, you, man. I got time.
1: Yeah. You <laughs> know, that kind of, you know, it's a good segue into, you know, the second one, which was curated selections of successful stories skew your reality. Yeah. And I loved when I read this because. Personally, I think like many people, I love knowledge. I I read a lot of books. I love biographies. I love hearing about other people's blueprints of things. And so often it could throws you off the path of what is working or what is actually the thing that you want, more so because it's very easy to look at something external of what somebody else did and not realize that they might be talking from experiences like down the road that you are not in right now. And it's very easy to go back into that term of like feeling like you're lacking something and then completely shift off. And then all of a sudden you realize that you just shifted everything and it's not aligned with the vision that you have. And I've caught in myself, I've caught myself in that trap numerous times from there. And I think it kind of goes back to your point of chaotic ambition versus true ambition. Yeah, I
0: like that you pulled this one out. In many ways, you hit the nail on the head. There's a few missing pieces that I'll that I'll go over from what you said. This was actually uh, the sample chapter for the book proposal, and that's how important I think that this topic is because you're right. There's there's so much information out there. There's so much storytelling out there. There's so much content out there, but it all suffers from what's called survivorship bias. We hear about it because it worked. You don't hear about the stuff that doesn't work. Against all odds, success stories get shared as gospel. If they can do it, so can you. And inspirational examples are wonderful. They can be quite useful. But I think what's also useful is the awareness that being surprised when something works is a really bad thing. And that's why I say that curated selections of successful stories skew our reality. There's a there's a story I'll never forget. There was, there was this guy on stage. He was a speaker on stage. And he told this inspirational story, of this podcaster, he who against all odds, they made it big. Supposedly, this guy, he was a sales coach, had 50 listeners in year one, could barely afford his tiny apartment, right? You're a podcaster. You get this. Mm-hmm. By year five, he had 500 listeners. And at year seven, the show caught fire and he had a million downloads, right? What grit, what a testament to believing in oneself, to doing the work, to pushing through against all odds. And, and it is. But also, this dude worked for free for six years. And yeah, it worked out. And that's why we're talking about him. But it also might not have. And for most, it doesn't. And I think that's also really important to talk about. His story was shared because it's remarkable. It was remarked upon because it was an outlier event. The more unexpected the success, the bigger the outlier, the better the story. Not to say that we can't learn bits and pieces from outliers, but it's a mistake to expect similar results from doing the same things. mm mm-hmm. Success stories are visible, failures are invisible, and the resulting effects are a combination of overly optimistic thinking and correlation causation experts. The only reason we're hearing about our hero is that his success was unexpected. The only reason we're hearing about him is because the odds were stacked against him. Bad decisions can still result in positive outcomes. A 95% chance of failure still comes to a 5% chance of success. Mm-hmm. But survivorship bias assumes that success tells the whole story and ignores past failures. Nobody is going to speak on stage about people who take insane risks, fail miserably, and live their lives as abject failures in beds of their own making. Here's the thing. In math, 20 times 1 is the same as 1 times 20. But in real life, it really is. Mm -hmm. For example, you can raise the average level of wealth of everyone in a baseball stadium by $100,000. You want to know how? Get Bezos to walk in. So we need to be really careful when we're consuming these sensational stories, And I don't think that they're necessarily bad, but I do think they're really important to understand that Mm -hmm. success equals talent plus luck, and great success equals a little bit more talent and a lot more luck.
1: Yeah. Love what you said there about these are... Outlier story, they're beautiful stories. They they give you fuel, like they give you motivation and inspiration. But I love uh yeah, my friend Carrie Campbell always uses the phrase, are you looking for inspir inspiration or information? Like if you listen to something for inspiration and it fuels you up to get what you need to done during the day, that's a great thing. But if you're looking for information, which is often we're looking for a savior because we don't feel good in what we're doing, this is where I've had it. This is where I've had uh, debates about the law of attraction because we always hear about <laughs> the term the law of attraction, but you're only hearing the stories of when it worked. Like yeah. how many people have wished for all the things in there, and then it doesn't work out. It doesn't pan out. That's the 95 percent of it. Like you can't. I would say that, that, that one's people... more
0: of a 99.9 9 to <laughs> 0.01. But it's. I mean, think about uh, what happened a couple of years ago. If you follow like the crypto markets or the Wall yeah. Street bet story and all that. Think about this Dogecoin millionaire dude. I don't know if you if you came across that, but mm-hmm. it was this guy. He, all this press everywhere, right? This dude who hailed himself as the Dogecoin millionaire. Basically, he saw Elon Musk tweet about Dogecoin, and he knew that this thing was gonna make it big. And so he took all of this. This guy made like thirty thousand dollars a year. So this guy took all of his savings. He took out huge debts. He leveraged himself like mad, and he put it all into Dogecoin, and it worked. And all of a sudden, he has $3 million and news. Everybody's going crazy. And he knew, how did he know this guy's brilliant? Well, no shit. A couple of years later, this dude's lost it all because objectively, he made a dumb fuck decision. And the type of person who makes a dumb fuck decision doesn't make just one dumb fuck decisions. And so they're going to keep making bets with low odds of success. And eventually, the odds always play out. Well, it works the other way, too. The best investors in the world, using an investor analogy, are right sixty to sixty-five percent of the time. What does that mean? That means the literal best decision makers on the planet, with the best information on the planet, have a sixty to sixty-five percent hit rate. Which means they are wrong four out of ten times. You got to stay in the game that, long that's enough. That's failing to the odds in school. play yeah. out, man.
1: <laughs> you got a sixty on a test. That's an F. <laughs> but if you but if yeah. you
0: keep making good decisions. Mm-hmm. And I call it, you know, instead of looking for the capital B best, actually, what we need to be looking for are the lowercase G e good enough things to do, mm. and continue to act upon, continue to to execute upon those things for long enough for the odds to play out. Understanding that you can objectively make the right decision and take the right actions, and in the short term, it might not work out, and it will always look like somebody else has figured out something that you don't. But the thing is, when we compare ourselves to other people who seem to be moving faster because they jumped on some short-term hack, we're not actually comparing ourselves to one person. What we're doing is we're rep- we're comparing ourselves to some sort of a representative conglomerate of people. We're, res- we're comparing ourselves to not like, like, I'm not comparing myself to Michael. I'm comparing myself to Michael and Jim and Jeff and Jimmy Mm -hmm. and whatever. Assuming that they're all the same person, because Mm -hmm. at any one time, there's always going to be somebody who has hacked something or basically just got lucky at that point in time Mm -hmm. and hit it hard, right? But that person is always going to flame out like Icarus too close to the sun, but then there's going to be another one. But as an outsider, you don't see it when they fail. You just see somebody else replacing them and it always looks like somebody is moving faster than you. Right. But it's not somebody. It's the collective them. Mm -hmm. And we gotta look past that.
1: Yeah. We see I mean we see this all the time in the fitness world. Um, you know, with the with the transformation programs, the before and after pictures of 12 weeks down. I remember Dax Moy talked about he's like, that's not a transformation, that's a change program. You made a change in 12 weeks. He's like, see the before and after pictures from three years down the road, not 12 weeks, you know, and it's And that's where, I mean, we see the high intensity based world and stuff like that. It's a great marketing scheme. It's very sexy because it's all in your face right off the bat that you're going to get this as quick as possible. Sadly, not realizing that 90% of the people go back into old habits afterwards, but that's not the, that's yeah. not the message that you hear. You afterwards. know what it is? It's
0: uh, my buddy, Mike Dola says stuff like that is kind of like getting abs. You have to get him to realize it's not all that.
1: It's <laughs> And it sucks and it really sucks to get there.
0: Yeah, it sucks to get there and it sucks to maintain it, but you kind of have to do it Mm -hmm. in order to figure out that it's really, it's like the same thing as getting rich. It's like, well, I mean, not to say that it sucks, not to say that you don't want to strive to make a lot of money. I think that, I, I, I think that having a lot of money is better than not having enough money, but you realize that money is an amplifier. It amplifies everything that's already there. And mm-hmm. so if your life sucks or you're a miserable person or you don't have good friends or you're not philanthropic or you don't exercise enough, having more money ain't going to do shit. It's mm-hmm. just going to amplify that. If you're a selfish jerk, having more money is just going to make you more of a selfish jerk. Right. And and so the key then is to try to be a good person all along, try to do the right things all along, try to mm-hmm. exercise and live a well-balanced life. And yeah. uh, having money is going to amplify all of the good things you're already doing. But if you're sacrificing a ton in order to get a lot of money, you don't have to read many biographies of super successful people Mm -hmm. in order to uh, realize very quickly that, well, you might admire what they've accomplished. You don't desire their life. How many, let me ask you this, how many divorces out of the 10 richest men in the world, how many divorces do you think that they have together between them?
1: I'd I'll be conservative and say seven. Yeah. 14. Yeah. You don't need to know
0: much else, do you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And ask anybody who's gone through that process and say, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, all right. yeah. So, all right, So yeah. we often don't have a problem with authenticity. We have a problem with trusting that our authentic self is enough. So- I love this term, John, authenticity, because I think it gets thrown around so much in here when it's, uh, you know, if if you, it's kind of like saying I have a good sense of humor. Well, it's better to prove that by just saying something funny. Like if you're authentic, then you probably don't need to say it. But I realized that <laughs> But I realize that it is, it's something that it seems like we strive for is to be authentic. We're always questioning it. But when you said that at uh, the second part, we have a problem trusting that our authentic self is enough. I thought of this as, is this something that we always feel like there's more that we need to do rather than just staying the course of what we know yeah. to be true?
0: I mean, look, dude, we're all unique and special and weird in some way, aren't mm-hmm. we? Yeah. I think that trusting our uniqueness and working backwards is the essence of having a vision. And I think that having a vision for your business is like reading Twitter your entire life and then discovering there's such a thing as books. The world stops being scary and overwhelming, and then it starts to make sense. I don't think that anxiety and overwhelm result from the amount of work you have to do. I think the result of not knowing whether the work you're doing is making any damn difference. Most of us don't need to work more. We need to get better at choosing what to do. And a lot of this has to do with this term authenticity, but the reality of it is just kind of being, okay, I want to tell you about a, a buddy of mine. His name is Brian Pirip, two R's, P I R R I P. And Brian is my favorite person to follow on the internet. Uh, he has the most loyal and best Rolodex of sports code, particularly baseball code, collecting enthusiasts in the world. Brian for ten years uh, produced television shows for Chinese tourists to come to the United States and ran boutique tours for Chinese tourists in the United States. Uh, and then COVID happened. His business is gone like that, right? Like finished. And so one day, Sam, who's one of his business partners, they were just sitting there. He's just like, "What the hell am I gonna do?" Right? Sam's like, "You always talk about baseball cards, dude." He's like, "Yeah, but I like something I just do like behind the scenes, whatever." So Sam's like, you got that card on your desk. You say it's one of your favorite ones. It was a Jose Canseco 1986 Donor's rookie. He goes, just talk about it. And he filmed him. And they uh, and they put the video up on TikTok. Brand new TikTok account. Went to bed. 37,000 views the next morning. He said, do it again. Picked up Ken Griffey Jr. Upper Deck, 1989. Talked about it. Talked about its place in its childhood, right? 100,000 views in the first 24 hours. He goes, shit, man, we're on to something here. And... He started, he started just producing these types of videos. And one of the things he said to me that I'll never forget, he said, it's amazing how shameful I felt about sports cards. I mean, this has been a huge hobby of mine since I was a kid, but there was this feeling that as a grown man, I shouldn't be going and buying trading cards, that it's something that kids do. Once I started talking about it these past two years, I realized that it's a normal thing. And there's a lot of dudes doing this. He just started putting out videos talking about his favorite cards. And he started traveling around. This guy spent 300 days in a Marriott hotel last year. He visits every single card shop. He goes to all the card shows. He meets collectors, talks to them, just geeks out with them. He has boundless energy because this is something that he is irrationally passionate about. And I share his irrational passion. I'm one of the dudes who always loved it. I love that. He said... He said, what usually ends up happening with most things we feel shame about in life is that once we start telling people about it and being our an authentic self, people love it. It's not just the topic though that you geek out on every single day, right? When you when you start sharing the stuff that you're rationally obsessed about, it's a beacon that attracts your type of people to you. And also you figure out pretty quickly how to scratch your own itch because you know that thing better than anything else. Mm-hmm. So in Brian's case- he was really frustrated with the old way of displaying and protecting coats. Did you know in 2022, 1952 tops Mickey Mantle code sold for $12.6 million. It was displayed on the sale in the shittiest, ugliest plastic case, no ultraviolet light protection to collectors. coats are outpieces. pieces. Yeah. This thing sold for over $12 million. You would yeah. not see a painting sold in a shitty plastic case with no protection from light that's Mm -hmm. gonna degrade it over time. And yet this happens. So he built what's called the Mint case, M1NT, which is a beautiful new way to store and display collectibles. It is the first innovation of its kind in sports card collecting's 140 year history. But because he's so obsessed with this thing and because he's traveling and talking to people and has unlimited energy about it, he's showing prototypes to all of the different code collectors that he meets mm-hmm. too, and asking their feedback on it, to all the podcasters. he's thousands of people on the wait list for this thing, and he has the most loyal following out of anybody in his space. But it's also not just collectors. Because of what he's doing and the joy around what he's doing and the, how genuine it is, professional athletes are on social media too, and they find his stuff, and a lot of them are fans of Brian because the joy he's bringing back to the hobby. Ken Griffey Jr., Carries his mint case that Brian made for him around with him with his rookie code in it everywhere he goes and shows it to everybody. And you don't know, want to know what code is inside that case. It was Brian's Griffy rookie code from when he was young. Wow. That he gave to the Griffy when Griffy invited mm-hmm. him to his house to hang out and talk cards. And like, here's the thing that I love mm-hmm. about the story is that probably 1% of the people listening to this podcast know or care about code collecting. But if that's you, we just had a connection and you're like, I got to check this shit out. Mm -hmm. But if that's not you, it doesn't apply to you. It's the 1% that makes you different. That's how you connect. It's not the 99% that makes you the same. Yeah. But personally, when I started to see Brian's videos, it brought me back to my childhood and brought joy. And so one day I messaged him and I said, thanks. We spoke on the phone soon after. He told me about Mint. It hadn't been (laughs) announced when we spoke. And he said, completely in passing, it was just part of what we were talking about. He said, yeah, pretty soon we're going to have to find five investors. Like, like we're looking for five investors just to get the tooling done and stuff like this. We've got this big wait list and whatever. And I asked him how much money he needed. And he told me, and I said, don't bother looking. I'll take the entire investment around. And so now I'm a part owner in that mm-hmm. company. Because when you're rationally obsessed with something and you put that out there, you attract other people who are also rationally obsessed with that thing, and they get it in a way that others don't. I, he didn't need to send me a pitch deck. It was a right. I totally got what he was doing mm-hmm. and the opportunity and the need and all of the special stuff around it. Yeah, it's not it's not the 99 percent that everybody in your industry does. It's what that one percent that you have, that's some weird uncommon commonality with other people. Yeah. I could give you examples from fitness too, but yeah. Um, it's cool, man. I love that, this stuff.
1: Dude, that there's so many threads in that story, John, that I love. Um I think I was thinking one of the best definitions you could probably say of authenticity is what are you irrationally passionate about? Huge. I think that that is a great question to ask. And as you're saying that there's I, I don't I forget the guy's name, but there is a guy who on Instagram, he has a page where he's a huge, just Disney fanatic. And he, he's an adult Disney fanatic and he tours the park every day and goes into all the details and all the intricacies. He talks about the stories of the custodians, the people that work there, like all the, and you don't have to. What's interesting is, as you said, like the 1% of people who are interested in Disney will immediately go there. But a hundred percent of people also know when somebody is so passionate about it, excited that's, about something. That's the part. Yeah. Yeah. And yep. I love that and I love that that when you when you speak about something that you are so excited about. And like I don't have to be know anything about really the topic, but if you like, I know a little bit about baseball cards. I like I have a few like from my old childhood, Just but the- I would go there and follow that all the time, like just to see the just details long, and the man. intricacies behind it. And you just pick that up. And that's such a lesson I'm taking from this. And I hope everybody uh, you know, takes from that as well. Is like, what are you irrationally passionate about? Like, what do you what can you talk about at nauseum without getting tired about it at all? Right. That's something that in the world that we have now of using things like social media or developing. A community of people that maybe aren't directly in your vicinity, but you can do it online. There are people around there that share that same passion 100%. for what you're doing.
0: Hundred percent. So I can give you four examples over the last three months with baseball codes, with sports codes of people that I have met and connected and become much closer friends with because I brought up I brought up baseball codes in the conversation. And it rekindled something in their their youth. So Jason Pfeiffer, who was the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, collected basketball cards when he was young, and he would mail a letter to every single player he had a basketball card for with the basketball card and ask them to sign it. And he has hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of signed basketball cards from the 80s. Um, Adam Franklin, who runs Franklin Sports, baseball gloves, everything. Right. Adam Franklin um, opens up, he, he stopped collecting and now he goes to card shows because his son is 14 and they're starting to open up packs of cards again. Garib Seamus, who started Comic-Con, opens up packs of cards with his family every single weekend when they get together. His parents opened a card, a card shop and toy store in the 80s and his brother still runs it. Jim Quick, the brain expert, mm-hmm. collected basketball cards. These are all people that I've met and spent time with in the last yeah. three months. And all people that I have a much closer, closer relationship to kinship to, because we were able to connect on something deeper yeah. in a professional setting originally, right? We are able to connect on something deeper than just, oh, what do you do? Now we're talking mm-hmm. about our childhood. Now we're talking about our families. And I brought, Jason and I spent an afternoon together two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And, uh, and I brought packs of 1989 Uh, Bowman and 1989 Fleer. And I gave him to him to open him up with his son. And and he looks at me and he goes, not my son, man. I'm going to open these up with my Mm father-in-law. Like that's the kind of thing that starts to happen when you're like, yeah, man, I was embarrassed about this. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm an adult. I open up playing cards. Like what the hell? But, but there's something about, there's something about being, being unobjectively yourself that yeah. I find people find really appealing. There's there's this guy in our world. He used to be in the fitness industry. Now it's in the general marketing industry, but he's he's very, very loud. He's very, very out there and people have a lot of different opinions on him. And I've been friends with him for years and years and years and years and years. And uh, and, and one time, I don't know, I commented on a post of his or something and a buddy of mine messaged me and said, hey, do you like do you like this guy? Like, how you comment on the post. It seemed like you support him. Do you like him? I was like, I was like, you know what dude i don't know anything about what he does i'm not his customer but i fucking love <laughs> how much this dude is himself mm-hmm. i spent 3 hours with him and his girlfriend in a fake turkish post shop in montenegro while they were trying to figure out whether the stitching on these fake posters would look like it's real to the rich friends. I fucking love that shit. <laughs> like, I was fascinated. I was so, I'm like, people think this
1: way. Yeah. Like,
0: what is going on here? This is fascinating to yeah. me. <laughs> like, I love it. I love people that are just so mm-hmm. unabashedly themselves. Yeah. And even if it's just like dumb stuff, like, like a, a whatever, a fancy person, yeah, tour in Montenegro. Like, what a ridiculous thing to spend you <laughs> two days in montenegro doing right but man i was so drawn in by
1: it <laughs> oh yeah well there, there's something so beautiful about that and just human connection right because it, it could be the most ridiculous thing like so objectively ridiculous. but when you feel that they are authentically so excited about it you can respect that and be like absolutely tell it, me more it, you know
0: pulls us in, pulls in? yeah even if it's mm-hmm. something we're not interested in i posted this video i decided that that i wanted to Collect all Ken Griffey Jr. rookie codes, mm-hmm. and uh, and I had him when I was young, and then uh, I lost him, and so I wanted to get him yeah, I could just buy them. I mean, they don't cost anything. Like his codes, like mm-hmm. like ten bucks. His codes are worth nothing, right? Yeah. But and I was like, actually, I think it'd be really fun to buy a bunch of boxes of 1989 tops and Fleer and Donruss and whatever, and open up packs until I find it. And so I called over my best friend from when I was young. And we got together and we just opened up and I filmed it and I did the same thing with my son. And so he was, he was there too. And we opened up packs until we found the King of junior. And then we're all (laughs) jumping and screaming and stuff like that. It's just like, if you don't like cards, like that is just, how can you not smile when you see something like that? And it doesn't matter what it is.
1: That's all. Oh yeah. Everybody loves a quest. That's awesome. Oh, this is, this is beautiful, John. All right. I'm going to segue on this one here. Uh, this is short and sweet, but beware of false progress. So when I heard this, you know, what I just, I heard, I remember Denzel Washington as a famous quote, don't, uh, don't mischaracterize movement for progress. Right. And I just uh, refinished reading John Maxwell's book, The 21 Laws of Leadership. And he has a line in there that talks about longevity doesn't mean a job well done. And it kind of all, you know, kind of came uh, together when I heard this from here. But when you wrote this about false progress, what does that mean to you?
0: Hmm. Oh man, I think a lot about superficial, very superficial engagement metrics and stats and insights, particularly with social media. But it could be with anything else. Um, mm-hmm. You know the the issue with. A lot of the availability of data these days is that, I mean, I'm not the first person to say that, who says this, right? Not everything that counts can be counted. Over 90% of sales still happen through word of mouth, mostly offline. But we can't measure that. We don't see it. Right. And so we put all this emphasis on stuff that we can measure because we can see it and we can measure more and more and more and more every day. What we have to understand is that there's a misalignment in goals between the platforms that we use and our goals in using them. Now, you have to take into account the game that you're playing. If your game, if the game that you're playing is to try to become an influencer on Instagram, great. You're playing the same game as them, right? right. Their goals are for you to spend as much time on Instagram as possible in order, to, and, and for other people to spend as much time on Instagram as possible, because that way they can serve the most amount of ads. They make the most amount of money. Okay, totally fine. I don't knock it. It's it's their business. It's a, it's a for-profit, privatized or... or, or, or publicly traded company. Cool. Well, the way that they do that, it's actually, I think it's the greatest magic trick in times has been to convince people to effectively work for free, to produce content for them. Mm -hmm. While convincing these people that they're going to achieve their goals by producing content the way that they're going to produce it. And I think that producing content can be great as long as you keep your goals with that content production line. Because most people who work or who use social media to promote themselves. And by the way, you don't have to at all. In fact, most people who use it would be way better off pretending it didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Like you would achieve, if you're a personal trainer, you would fill your clientele quicker by knocking on doors, walking up and down the street than you ever would creating content. Mm -hmm. There's no question in my mind. But it feels like progress to put stuff out on the internet Because of the insights, because of all of these levers that these platforms have pulled to make it feel like you're achieving when you're not actually, Mm -hmm. their goal is for you to stay on social media. Your goal is to leverage that platform to be able to generate business and get the fuck off of there as Mm -hmm. fast as possible. There is a distinct goal misalignment there. The insights and data that they provide you are the insights and data needed To support their goals not your goals now there might be some crossover Mm -hmm. but they are not the same thing and this is why we need a recalibration because you're not making progress just because you've got a whole bunch of people to click on a link right i understand social media i understand psychology i wrote a book called Vironomics. i I tell (laughs) you i i I can write something in an even day that's going to get tens of thousands of likes it's not Mm -hmm. hard to do when you know how to write these things because It's such a a deeply psychological thing that other people are doing when they share information, they share it to articulate what they want others to think about themselves. You basically need to just say what other people are thinking in a really punchy, divisive way. Right. It's not hard, but why and to what end? Because if you're playing the game of an influencer an influencer a creator an entertainer it's all the same shit it's just branded differently the entertainment industry is the same as it's always been it's an outlier industry you're going to have a few people who are going to win massive what did um uh the the, the creator of the george a Lomano, the creator of the night of the living dead said in hollywood if you win they'll pay you a million dollars to come out and fight. <laughs> like the people who win, win massive, right? right? Mm-hmm. Everybody else basically waits tables for free mm-hmm. in the hope of catching the break.
1: In the hope of the success story that skewed There's the reality. There's almost
0: nothing in between. Mm-hmm. And if you knowingly, you know, back when people were making like a pilgrimage to Hollywood, they knew the rules of engagement. They knew that it was a long time horizon. They knew that the odds of success was small. They knew that there were outsized rewards for a chosen few. And they signed up for that knowingly wonderful. I think it's incredible. I think it's inspirational. I think it's amazing to take a bunch of risks to go and take your shot and try to make something happen. Yeah. The problem that I have now is that the rules of engagement are no longer clear. And so there's a lot of people that are desiring the rewards of one game, but playing by the game and measuring progress on the other one. And the entertainment industry, there's going to be a few people. There's going to be a few influencers. There's going to be a few Logan Pulse who are going to make it massive. And what he's done is unbelievably impressive. Like him or not, what he's done is unbelievably impressive. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people like him, dude. Yeah. There's a lot of people trying to be like him. And that's because really an entertainer, it, you you don't, we, we unconsciously all know that in order to entertain around a subject, you only really need a baseline level of knowledge on that subject. Right. You really don't need to know yeah. much about a thing. You yeah. don't need to be any kind of an expert. Yeah. And so as a result, it's just a pure, ex- it's a pure um, exposure game. So you can sell based off of fear and emotion, low priced items, which is why basically every influencer sells some combination of clothing, skincare, slash makeup, slash eyelashes, slash hair extensions, uh, supplements, energy drinks, mm-hmm. Like it's, it's some combination of that in every single case. It's because they can't sell anything else, man.
1: Right. That's surface can't. level things that, yeah.
0: And there are, there are exceptions, but there's not a lot of them. And those really surface level things are low margin, high commoditization, because they're just easy to do. It's really easy to build a vitamin water. Like, sorry, everybody right. who does it like the, I mean, Your entire story of how you couldn't find anything better on the market and so you had to solve this problem by yourself is complete and utter fucking bullshit. There's like three places in the United States that make supplements that white label. Mm -hmm. You call them up. They send you a pamphlet in the mail that's a binder that you literally choose your ingredients out of. Mm -hmm. All you motherfuckers are buying from that same place. (laughs) That's how it works. The entire story of You were not satisfied with anything in the market. It's not true. Yeah, And I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think you need to understand that that's actually, for most people, a really bad way to grow and do business is to try to pretend that there's something they're not. I don't have any desire for that. Yeah. None.
1: Yeah. And it's it's not me saying that it's a bad thing. Yeah, it's that difference between being a person and being a persona, right? That's you know, a good way to say it. Yeah, it's. I, mean, I think. I think Aubrey Marcus had the quote. He said, "A persona is only worthy of can only receive praise. They can never receive love." You know, and it's like that's why there's so many people who are, you know, use like Chris Hemsworth played Thor, and people go out and they see him on the red carpet, and people are like, "Oh my God, I love you! I love you!" they're not saying I love Chris Hemsworth. They're saying, I love Thor. I love what you portrayed. And it is very different. And you can get accolades that can feel very good in the moment, but it's short lived. It's, it can be very short lived. It's the same thing. It's like that false progress. It's like, it's, it's like a half baked cookie. Like it still tastes okay, but it's not the full thing that you're getting. And you know, what we talked about before John of like that, you know, that true ambition versus chaotic ambition and being, what are you just so passionate about that has no rationale to it? It's like, you love talking about it. Yeah. And as you said, it's like, you don't need to have this expansive knowledge of so much competence around one subject in order to be successful with it. And I always think of this, of why so many people struggle in, in their own health and their own fitness goals is because often it's, they feel like they lack competence, which then brings down their confidence in what they believe they can do when in reality, as you said, it's like it's better to be just consistently good around things rather than trying to be occasionally great and get these big spikes going on. If you just consistently stay good on a day by day basis, you're probably going to be really fulfilled in everything that you're pursuing.
0: Yeah. Really fulfilled and probably perform it better. And when you surround yourself with people who are your types of people, I, you you're going to do a better job and you're going to be happier. I mean, the three most important decisions everybody makes in Mm -hmm. their life is who to marry, where to live and what to do for work. Yeah. And interestingly, those are also the three decisions that most people make without much thought. And then by the time (laughs) they think about them, they have so much sunk cost involved. that it's very hard to reverse out of it.
1: Yeah. So brother, dude, this time has flown by with you in normal, good podcasting fashion. um, We got through about, half of the things that I wanted to, which is totally fine with me, which so we'll have to, you know, conclude this at another time, but brother, I appreciate you taking the time to jump on, to go through these things. As I said, I love the work that you're doing and, uh, can't wait to see all the, all the more stuff that you got going on.
0: Appreciate you, man. Thank you so Absolutely,
1: much. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So if people want to check more stuff of everything that you're doing now, what is the best place that they can go and and see all the work that you're putting out?
0: Yeah. I mean, our podcast is best. Uh, it's called the obvious choice. And which is also the name of my next book, which is where all of the stuff uh, came from. So, if you're interested in that, in anything that I was talking about here, the kind of general philosophy, the obvious choice is, is very much a business philosophy mm-hmm. that I'm pushing forward. And so, that's a book that's coming out in January 2025, published by HarperCollins. And uh, and our podcast is really talking at length about mm-hmm. uh, about this kind of philosophy, figuring it out as we go. Yeah. And so, check that out. I love your guys'
1: um, chem- I love your guys' chemistry too. Of the guys, yeah, Who, who's that? who's your co-host
0: on there? Amber, Amber and Wen.
1: Yeah, they're great.
0: And I joke. So I love comedy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So where that came from is I love comedy. I love stand-up comedy. But one of the things that you realize when you really study comedy is that actually the 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 funny guy isn't the funny guy. It's the serious guy who doesn't know that he's the better <laughs> joke. And in every single case, that's what it is. I mean, Dumb and Dumber is the prime example of that. Jim Carrey is not the funny character in Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> In the office, Michael Scott is the funniest character in the office because he doesn't know that he's the butt of the joke. And so I wanted to bring that in to our podcast where we have we have Ren, who's kind of like an MC. He's just funny. He's great. He's slow jams. He's just quick on the draw, man. I'm delivering like the content, like the learning stuff. And then Amber is kind of the disgruntled producer who's like, why the hell am I here with these idiots? <laughs> And, uh, and I, and I, I really wanted to, um, kind of create that in a way of call it like infotainment sort of. And then the other piece of it was, I think a lot of the, I think a lot of what's going on these days where if you have any kind of a public persona, or you put out information in the public, you have to be very careful about what you say, especially as a white man, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about, and there's a lot of things that I'm just not that educated about, so I don't mm-hmm. talk about them, but words can be misconstrued. And so having a podcast with a black guy from North Carolina and a white woman from the Bible Belt helps me be able to speak a little bit more freely mm-hmm. because it's us three figuring it out um, yeah, in a much no, more good open point, way. Yeah. So there was, there was a couple of reasons why I put that kind of crew together. Anyway, so the podcast is called The Obvious Choice, and then um, my Instagram is be the only place where I really produce a lot of content, and that's at It's Coach Goodman.
1: Beautiful. Awesome. Brother, okay. thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. Listeners, go, go follow John, and I'll catch you guys on the next one. I right, peace. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you found some great value here, and if you like this episode, please drop a comment and leave us a five-star rating and review. It does more to build the show than you could imagine. And do not forget to check out and join the Strength Connection Facebook group. In this group, I share the biggest takeaways and lessons from these amazing conversations, as well as training and strength tips for pursuing mastery and fulfillment in life. This group is filled with individuals looking to take full control over their strength, and it's the perfect space to explore new ideas and to share your journey. You'll also get exclusive access to the Strength Connection Mastery Seminars. It's a deep dive into the physical, mental, and spiritual training that you can begin using immediately. So do not wait, go now. Seriously, go. I right, much love to you. Thank you so much and I'll catch you on the next one.